The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, we'll be reading through verse 22 this evening, which is the end of the book. As I mentioned last week, one of the sad things about Ruth being such a short book is uh, it's so beautiful, but we're so done, so quickly done going through it. Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, the word of the Lord. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 13. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 13. We'll be reading through verse 25 this evening. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 13, the word of our God. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on to Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets... The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, 
of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to the book of Ruth, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Do you like love stories? Um, Most of us do, uh, but we have different sorts of tastes. Personally, I like my love stories straight. Uh, That is, I want a boy meets girl. Nice boy, nice girl. I want to like both of them. Uh, They fall in love, and they live happily ever after. Uh, I don't want one of those stories that's really all about lust and desire. Uh, I want a real love story. And I don't want a story that ends with some kind of terrible tragedy. If I was looking for tragedy, I'd read King Lear, or perhaps I'd read Death of a Salesman. When it comes to love stories, I want a genuine love story between likable characters who truly fall in love and commit to one another and who live happily ever after. What about you? Well, tastes do change and do vary, but I suspect that most of you like happily ever after as well. Uh, David Strain, a very fine preacher down in Mississippi right now, uh, he suggests that we are in fact hardwired for happily ever after. We're hardwired for happily ever after because we long to be redeemed from the struggles and pains of life in this present age. And if he's right, then love stories that end in misery are perhaps a type of revolt against the gospel. Such stories declare that life is essentially meaningless and devoid of hope, even though hope has already crashed into history in the person of Jesus Christ. So Christians above all people should enjoy the triumph of hope in a truly good love story. Of course, there's more to a good love story than simply getting the formula right. Uh, A great deal depends on the creativity of the writer, and in some cases, the creativity of the actors. As we come to the last section of the book of Ruth this evening, we realize that we are dealing with one of the greatest love stories that has ever been told, because the author of this story is none other than God. The ending to this beautiful book telescopes outward in ever-widening circles. First, Ruth finds security and status as the wife of Boaz. Second, the women of the town celebrate the Lord's rich blessings upon Naomi. Third, the Lord rescues his people Israel from the downward spiral of everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. And fourth, If we place Ruth in the broader context of all redemptive history, 
we see how the Lord was working through Ruth and Boaz to bring about the salvation of the world. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Uh, Last week we heard how Boaz gained the right to serve as kinsman redeemer for Naomi and her property. And we also heard of his self-giving commitment to marrying Ruth in order to raise up the line of Ruth's deceased husband, that the family name would not be abolished among the people of Israel. Now after the joyful blessing of Boaz by the witnesses, without any apparent emotion, the narrator simply announces basic facts typical of any Israelite wedding. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Now, for some reason, um, a pretty large number of commentators that I've either read or heard, they don't like this line. Uh, They found this idea of Boaz taking Ruth to be his wife somehow impersonal. And, And I don't understand that. This is actually just a standard, typical language that we use in marriage. Do you, Ruth, take Boaz to be your lawfully wedded husband? And what we see here is actually something that is deeply meaningful. Boaz is fulfilling his covenant faithfulness, the commitments he had made to Ruth, that he, in fact, would pursue marrying her. She proposed marriage. He said, I will. And he's done everything in order to accomplish that. And so Boaz here is in the ordinary language of marriage, taking Ruth to be his lawfully wedded wife. Rather than being impersonal, this is the official record of Boaz personally and faithfully keeping his commitments to Ruth. The unusual phrase in this verse are the apparently redundant words, and she became his wife. See, this draws our attention to Ruth's change of status. She is no longer that Moabite woman, or even the wife of the deceased. Ruth was now the wife of Boaz, a man of standing within the Bethlehem community. Um, Daniel Block points out that there's a progression in the titles that are applied to Ruth throughout the book. In chapter 2, she is called the foreigner and a maidservant. In chapter 3, Ruth identifies herself personally to Boaz as his servant. Now she is the wife of an important man in Bethlehem. This change in social status reminds us of how fully the Lord had grafted this one-time stranger into the covenant and one who was an alien to God's promises into one of this covenant people. As we saw last week, even the women in the community were celebrating this and, and the people were giving their blessing upon Boaz and upon Ruth, that Ruth would be like the matriarchs of which the nation had been built up. Moreover, we are told that the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now, there's something you got to read the whole book to really pick this up, but intriguingly, this is one of only two times in the entire book that we are told that Almighty God does anything. Now, God's providence is evident all throughout. We see that God is at work. He's the author of the story. 
There are only two times in the entire book of Ruth, but the Lord is said to actually do something. And I think it's actually quite interesting if we compare these two times. The other time when we are explicitly told of the Lord acting is in Ruth chapter 1, verse 7. There we are told, the Lord had visited his people and given them food. See, it seems significant to me that the only times we see the Lord explicitly acting in Ruth are first when he ends the barrenness of the land by giving them food, and second when the Lord ends the barrenness of Ruth by giving her a son. Uh, We're going to return to this in just a moment, but I think once we see that, we realize the author of Ruth wants us to put these two things together to to, to see that this is a, a specific way that he wants us to perceive how God is acting. And if we do this, we will see that in the Lord's kindness to Ruth, we also see a picture of the Lord's intention to bless all of his people. Well, just hold that thought. We'll come back to it. But for right now, let's focus just a bit on what the marriage and the pregnancy meant for Ruth herself as an individual saint. Um, The inability to bear children uh, can be one of the most emotionally taxing challenges that many couples face. Uh, I want to encourage you, encourage all of us, we ought to be compassionate around this issue with our brothers and sisters who are wrestling with this struggle and we ought not to minimize their struggles. But the matter was even more pressing in Israel, where the issue of carrying on the family name was of tremendous importance. Yet Ruth had been married for 10 years to Machlon, and she had not yet been able to conceive. Uh, That must have been very trying for her. And when we discover that Ruth was wholeheartedly committed to the Lord we realize that she must have frequently petitioned the Lord in prayer that the Lord would open her womb and give her a child. And yet up until this point, the Lord was either saying no, or he was saying not yet. And so Ruth continued loving and following the Lord without receiving this good gift that she had been pleading for. Nevertheless, Our long-suffering does not mean that the Lord doesn't answer our prayers. Shouldn't we, in fact, hear the announcement of the marriage and this birth as a fulfillment of Naomi's prayer all the way back in chapter 1? Naomi had prayed, May the Lord grant his favor, and may you find security each in her husband's home. Now, of course, the Lord does not give an affirmative answer to all of our prayers. Not in the present age. Many wonderful Christians who want to get married and have children never do. They're being called by the Lord to truly learn what it means that his grace is sufficient for them. Ruth has something powerful to say to us about that as well. She, after all, has struggled a great deal. But let's not let the truth that our Heavenly Father doesn't say yes to all our prayers, blind us to the fact that he frequently does say yes to our prayers, and that through such prayers, our Father is sometimes pleased to freely give us the deepest longings of our own hearts. That's how we answered Naomi's prayer for her daughter-in-law. Taken together, 
We see that the Lord who was restoring, elevating, and blessing Ruth was also preparing her to have a part in his restoring, elevating, and blessing the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then suddenly the scene shifts. We're actually not told where the scene shifts to, but the obvious choice is it's shifting to the town square, perhaps the gates of the city, a place where people would be congregating. There the women of the city are joyfully celebrating the Lord's blessings upon Naomi. Um, That makes me smile. I hope it makes you smile as well to see how these women are rejoicing with their sister who was herself rejoicing. And we should remember to do that, right? Um, The Christian life is not simply about us studying all the time and making sure we have our theology down. There's an important place for us as the people of God to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. Verses 14 and 15. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now this is a scene of great joy, but what exactly is going on? And I, for one, am not certain I know the answer. Uh, There's an ambiguity in this passage. Uh, Given how beautifully and intricately the entire book is woven together, it is at least possible that the ambiguity is intentional. But here's the question. Who is the redeemer that these women are talking about? Right? they're They're telling Naomi, you haven't been left without a redeemer, Who is that Redeemer? Well, you might be assuming that it's Boaz. But why then do the women say, this day? Which seems to connect the redemption with the child who has just been born and not with Boaz. Um, Remember, Boaz would have redeemed Naomi's estate at least nine months earlier. Because Ruth has just given birth. Right? So, but the very language of this day suggests that the Redeemer in this passage is not necessarily Boaz. And perhaps it's the child that uh, Ruth is giving birth to. And the idea that this child is in fact going to be the Redeemer in the sense of taking care of Naomi in her old age. Or perhaps it even points further down the path of history all the way to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will truly redeem her from her sins. I actually favor a different possibility. Regrettably, this uh, requires a slightly different translation. I'm going to give it to you twice just so you get the idea. Blessed be the Lord who has not, even to this day, ceased being a redeemer for you. Let me give that to you one more time. Blessed be the Lord who has not, even to this day, ceased being a redeemer for you. Now, if my reading is correct, the women are thanking the Lord for being the ultimate redeemer of Naomi. They are then asking that the Lord's name would be renowned in Israel, and they are saying that the Lord will be the restorer of life to Naomi and a nourisher to her in her old age. Uh, By the way, this word for restorer is the same word 
that shows up in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. The promise of blessing that these women speak to Naomi is found on the lips of her great-grandson, King David, in the 23rd Psalm, and on the lips of countless multitudes of believers ever since. He restores my soul. Well, how do we resolve this? I do think that the ambiguity of who the Redeemer is may be intentional. That we are meant to see that the Lord is serving as Naomi's Redeemer, but she is serving as Naomi's Redeemer through Boaz, who is the Redeemer of her land, and through this child pointing forward to the coming Christ. I think that's at least possible. Or at least going down to King David, who will bring about such a dramatic change in the history of Israel. They all go together. It is the Lord as well as Boaz, and also this child who would be renowned in Israel. Furthermore, while Boaz and his son will be nourishers of Naomi in her old age, they will be instruments of the Lord rather than independent sources of such blessing. Uh, The part that I really like here about this joyous celebration is found at the end of verse 15. Why don't you look there with me? The end of verse 15, the women say this, For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now we should be clear, there are times when you shouldn't say this. Uh, Think back to the uh, beginning of uh, 1 Samuel. You know, um, Hannah's wrestling with her inability to have children, and her husband Elkanah says to her, Why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Um, Men, please don't be like that. Not helpful. Also, you'll note that uh, Hannah turns away without giving an answer, which was probably very wise on her part. But here in the book of Ruth, the sentiment of the women is both fitting and beautiful. When Naomi had returned from the fields of Moab, she had lamented that she had gone out full and come home empty. You know, she never even mentions the godly daughter-in-law that she had with her. And interestingly, the women who greeted Naomi made no mention of Ruth either. It was like that foreign Moabite didn't even exist. Now they are publicly proclaiming that Ruth is better for Naomi than having seven sons. Verses 16 and 17. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. For Naomi... All is not lost. Her emptiness has been filled. The birth of this child signals new hope and new meaning in life. And because of him, her spirit will revive. I should probably point out that the word 
translated nurse here is actually more general than that. Uh, it wasn't that she was being a nursemaid to her grandchild. It simply is the front part of a woman's body. She was, she was holding this child, her precious grandchild, close to her breast. Right? It, do, it doesn't mean that she was actually nursing this child. But that is a tender picture of Naomi holding her precious grandson. And so the women say, look, a son has been born to Naomi. Now, it might be easy for modern Americans to think that's kind of a flight of romantic fancy, right? They're overstating the case. Or it's a sweet way of pointing out how the Lord had filled Naomi's life by giving her a grandchild. But it actually meant much more than that. The family name of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and her son, Machlon, were going to be extinguished in Israel. But now, now with this, the birth of this child the family name was going to carry on. In this child, the Lord was restoring her family's future in Israel as surely as if this child had been Naomi's very own child. On the other hand, it is hard to understand why the women would have called this child's name Obed, a name that has no intrinsic meaning. You know, a lot of Hebrew names mean something. This one doesn't, really. And, and it's kind of strange that these women are naming the child. Uh, presumably, Boaz and Ruth had also named this child, and the women are simply joining in, but we're not told. The bigger question is, why does this passage focus on Naomi rather than Ruth? I wonder if you stopped and thought about that. It's actually significant for understanding the book. Why does this passage focus on Naomi rather than Ruth. I want to ask that question in a different way. When was the last time that you saw a movie, a boy meets girl love story, and at the end of the story, all the emphasis was on the mother-in-law? Uh, I've never seen that movie. But here it is. This, is uh, this story is told in an unusual way because it has a very important point to make. Ruth is a picture of a godly convert from paganism who is grafted into the people of God. Ruth is a reminder that the Lord had promised to bless all the people groups of the earth through the seed of Abraham. Naomi, by contrast, is a picture of Israel. Israel in their rebellion against God. We need to remind ourselves that the book of Ruth is set in the time of Judges, this is a wicked, evil time in the history of Israel. The people as a whole refused to walk in the Lord's ways, and therefore he kept sending them chastising judgments. That is how the book of Ruth begins. Right? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, that doesn't mean there just happened to be a famine in the promised land. The Lord was sending a famine into the promised land to chastise his rebellious people. Who is Naomi? She is part of rebellious Israel who was being chastised for their unfaithfulness through the famine. And Naomi demonstrates her unfaithfulness. We don't really know the story between her and Elimelech about who drove them leaving the promised land, but we do know she stayed out of the promised land for 10 full years after her husband died. Now you can think of that as a sort of self-imposed exile. 
you know, being thrown out of the promised land will later be described as exile. She chose to do that, and she chose to remain separated from the people of God. Yet the Lord had compassion on his people. He gave them food, and Naomi returned to Bethlehem a broken and bitter widow. Remarkably, instead of punishing Naomi for her rebellion, the Lord used Boaz and Ruth to not only provide her with food, but by his grace to renew her hope. Now with Ruth's marriage to Boaz and the birth of her grandson, the Lord has restored Naomi's life, or in the words of Psalm 23, he has restored her soul. By focusing on Naomi, the book of Ruth makes, the, makes clear that behind the love story of Boaz and Ruth lies the greater love story of God to his covenant people, even in their rebellion against them. Right? Ruth has the small story, it's beautiful, about Ruth and Boaz, but behind that story is the story of God who loves his wayward people. It is a story of despair being swallowed up by hope and of weeping being turned to joy. But it isn't a story with a happily ever after ending. Remember the basic plot line of the book of Judges. That period in Israel's history was marked by a downward spiral. It's not just that bad things kept happening. Uh, the people were doing what was right in their own eyes. God would become angry with them. He'd chastise them. And you know, even though the Lord was chastising them, they never really seemed to come to a full sort of repentance. And yet the Lord looks on his suffering people in compassion, and he would raise up a judge, a deliverer. And that deliverer would deliver them for a time. And then they'd just go back to their sin. You go through the book of Judges, you see it goes down and down and down. By the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, you think of Samson, kind of a hero of the faith. Let's just say Samson is not somebody you want your sons to grow up to be like or your daughters to grow up to marry, right? Samson wants to marry a pagan woman, and he lives a pretty crass life. That's the story of Judges. <clears throat> That's when the book of Ruth takes place. Nevertheless, the Lord had compassion on his people, and he would send judge after judge to deliver them from the persecutions that they faced. Each time the cycle repeated, the people just seemed to get worse and worse. Here's the question. Why would this time be any different? And the answer is what God is doing through Ruth and Boaz. The Lord has blessed Boaz and Ruth, two of his choicest servants. But if the people went back to their old ways, why would this time be any different? Was Israel simply doomed to an endless cycle of judgment and deliverance without ever getting to happily ever after? And the answer comes when we find amazing grace in a genealogy. Look at verses 18 through 22 with me. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. See, this genealogy is God's answer 
to the dreadful downward spiral that we see all throughout the book of Judges. Yes, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Beloved, Almighty God was not waiting for Israel to get their act together. Instead, he was preparing the way for a deliverer, a man after his own heart, to be the shepherd king over his people, Israel. And as the camera angle widens out, we see the blessings that the Lord has brought upon Ruth, a stranger to the covenants of promise, who was brought near and made an ancestor of King David. We have seen how the Lord was acting to restore Naomi to ensure that her husband's family line would not be cut off in Israel. But most importantly, we have seen how the book of Ruth is the love story of the living God with his rebellious people. How the Lord triumphed through grace to deliver not merely Naomi, but the entire nation from the fear of their enemies. And if we place the book of Ruth in the context of all redemptive history, we see that this love story involving Boaz, Naomi, and Ruth points to the redemption of Jew and Gentile alike in Christ's redemptive work as our kinsman redeemer and in his free choice to take the people of God as his bride. Now, in a fallen world, you may not get your Boaz or your Ruth. God does not promise you your best life now. The blessings of knowing God are often mixed with hardship and persecution, just as Jesus promised us. In spite of the widespread popularity of the wealth and health movement, who actually make promises that are far too small, but also that are far too soon, Jesus Christ does not immediately remove all of our spiritual sufferings nor difficulties in this life. But the sure hope that we have in Christ does put those struggles and sufferings into perspective. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the, our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Beloved, hope does not disappoint when that hope is fixed on the steadfast love of God in Jesus Christ. The book of Ruth is not a fairy tale, but a remarkable glimpse into the working of God in history. Ruth and Naomi both had their share of heartaches. Naomi had buried her husband. She had buried both of her sons. Ruth had buried her husband and then traveled to a land of people that she did not know with no earthly prospects at all. Both Naomi and Ruth had their share of genuine earthly hardships. The book of Ruth hides neither sin nor the consequences of man's rebellion against God from our view. But this beautiful book 
reminds us that man's rebellious no to God will not have the last word. Whether, rather than that, our rebellious no is swallowed up by God's yes and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. We naturally get caught up in the love story between Boaz and Ruth because it's such a beautiful story of hardship being replaced by happiness and weeping being turned to joy. We wish that something magical like that would happen in our lives. And then we realize it already has. For in Christ we are more deeply and more securely loved than we had ever dared to dream. In Christ, God's love story for us ends with happily ever after. Amen.